All right, this week on the second episode of the Let's Go Show, we had Colin Greenhall, formerly of Cushman Wakefield, T3 Advisors, and Trust, one of the few people who has gone from traditional commercial real estate into prop tech, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, early contributor to getting HQO off the ground in a lot of ways. We talked about uh, how he got hooked up with our team, how he helped us essentially get our foot in the door in the commercial real estate market and ultimately uh, what lies ahead or at least what we think lies ahead for PropTech. Hi, this is Chase Garbarino. I'm the co-founder and CEO of HQO and this is the Let's Go Show brought to you by HQO. Welcome, Greens. The Thanks man, for having the, me, boys. The man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> Feels good. Colin Greenhall. Feels good. All right. So um, for our audience, which we think is uh, mostly HQO people, so commercial real estate folks, as well as some technology and venture folks, let's get, let's get a little bit of your background. You're one of the commercial real estate people who went from the traditional commercial real estate side jumped into prop tech, which I don't think a lot of people have done. How'd you get into it? Yeah. Um, so I've been in commercial real estate since 2007, primarily in brokerage, focusing on the downtown market. Um, a majority of that time was spent with Cushman Wakefield. Um, and then another sort of more boutique firm called T3 Advisors. Uh, who focuses on working with emerging technology companies and um, and sort of venture back groups? Um, during my time at at Cushman, I had the opportunity to meet you when you were at, with uh, Bostino, and um, we sort of developed a relationship ever since. Yeah, the uh, our kind listeners got the whole messy. Backstory of Bostino last week with Gomer and McCarthy. Uh, you got to give Greens a hat tip because we moved into one of the grossest offices in Faneuil Hall in Boston, which Faneuil Hall, for people who aren't familiar, is basically like the mini Times Square. Boston. 27 bucks, buddy. 27 tw- bucks. 27 a square foot. So you did your job. But I did not. He, not only that. He came and helped us put together IKEA furniture, uh, which I'm not sure what we promised would be on the other end of that, but you certainly didn't get anything. So. No, no, it was a 30 pack and a couple of laughs and yeah. neither were had. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, was just, it was just furniture. We yeah. just put furniture together. Yeah. So that was, uh, what year was that? 2012, maybe? Yeah. All right. Man. Before the ice dams. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So... Yeah, we, we've been we've been kicking around since about 2011, 2012. I think you connected up with our group through you were working with Ryan Romano uh, at Cushman, right? Correct. And Romo and I grew up in the same town, so that's where it all where it all started. Um, so, what made you jump from big Cushman Wakefield to smaller firm? I I think. Um at some point in, in dealing with groups like Bostino and other sort of entrepreneurs, I, I got uh, a case of the entrepreneurial bug myself. Um, 
so going to T3, that was definitely, I was definitely working with more people like that, but it was also a smaller business that, um, you know, you were, we were making decisions on the ground that were impactful to the owners. And there was a, you know, hope, and my hope was that there was a path to a management position and partnership and all that, that didn't end up panning out. Um, I, I was thinking about this yesterday, probably one of the reasons I made the jump from, um, traditional brokerage into a more of a, it, it was, it's a prop tech company, but it was still sort of brokerage is at some point we were having a drink and you told me that I wasn't a real estate guy. To his real estate broker, to his to his representation at the time, he he said, "I don't see you as a real estate guy." <laughs> Which at first I was like, "And you're like, we're on an office tour right now. <laughs> <laughs> can this can this wait till after the office tour?" <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I gotta get the commission. Could I just can I stay? <laughs> I can a still real get. Guy I still have the, my license. Can I get yeah, paid? A- um, which at the time I was like. You know, that's tough to hear as, as you've been doing, or, you know, it was at the time, but like, you're also right. Yeah. Um, and there are, you know, like Ryan Romano. Well, that's a grind though, right? It's 100%. Being a broker's a grind. There's no differentiation. No. Nope. For the most part, you guys are all logging into the same database. Yep. Like it's tough, which you can make a good living doing it. But I think we were talking about Romo at the time and you're like, he's a real estate guy. Like he... Well, he loves it. He loves it. You always were interested in trying to like build something. Yeah. 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 No right path, but different. Yeah. Um, but there, I mean, the, the brokerage piece of my career is incredibly, to your point, there's no, there's not really major differentiators. So it's one of the hardest sales jobs I think you can have. Yeah. I actually think for prop tech salespeople, there's significantly more differentiation in software products. If we could send every salesperson, if you can, if you can compete as a broker where there's very little differentiation, like you get, you can sell, right? Like, and if you can get somebody who can sell, they can learn, you can learn how to sell a software product. It's hard. It's more technical sale, but it's a good, it's a good way to cut your teeth. Yeah. It was, um, a lot of fun and very refreshing when I started at trust the first, like, 90 to 180 days, I was still doing real estate deals, but also actively selling the tech product and to have something to talk about on the screen as opposed to like basically just trying to vibe out with a group of C-level people for 45 minutes. It was like very, um, I was like, whoa, this is awesome to have something like that to point to. And there are a lot of brokers that want to get into, I'm sure this has changed a little bit in COVID, but Getting into like the venture network, everyone's always asking for intros to VCs, which is always the worst idea because VCs are not particularly helpful at intros to portfolio companies. But when you do get in with VCs, it actually can yield business. Yeah. Which you started to get to know people not through trying to hawk real estate. Yeah. How'd you, how did you do that? Um, well, I, I mean, one of my one of the best relationships I have with a venture capitalist is vis be an int- one of your intros, oh, which would nice be a little softball. Right <laughs> there myself, huh? I feel like you knew that was Assisting coming. Myself, You're like, well, I'm basically responsible for any success you've had. Well, um, I just figured it'd be a good time to talk about Vale. Yeah, let's talk about Vale. Well, so, <laughs> <laughs> so. You're like, I'm glad you brought this I, well, up. I just think it's funny. I talked to, 
I, I have seen different, like we've talked about Ryan Romano and he's the, you know, he grinds um, and he's found a very successful model. I was talking to another broker who uh, has had a lot of success and I was asking him, like, how do you differentiate? The guy's like, roof decks. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, I have manually pulled a list of every roof deck in Boston. I got a PDF. I'm the roof deck guy. And I, like I remember that. thinking, like, wow, this industry needs disruption real bad. <laughs> uh, but it worked for him. And I think what worked for you was the how you networked in the community, which was very, like, the opposite of salesy. It started, to some degree, moving to T3 and being, like, tech-focused. Yeah, and feeling like I could be myself a little bit more. Right, right. Bigger firms, you have to kind of fall in line. Um, but I remember, so Scott Savitz, who's uh, data point capital, Previously, he started and ran Shubai, which was a big competitor in the Zappos space that he ended up selling to IAC. Super successful exit. Um, Absolute savage. Yeah. And just real numbers guy, Wall Street guy that went into tech entrepreneurship. And then after he sold Shubai, started DataPoint, which um, he was good to us on the sale of Streetwise. I remember he had just become a venture capitalist. I forget how I got connected to him, honestly, but he sh- he started showing up at the Faneuil Hall office when we were going through the sale. I'm 27 years old. I have no clue what I'm doing. And he was just coaching me through it. And I'm like, why is this guy helping me? Like, he has no interest in the company, but he did it never asking for anything in return. And like, there were a couple of like key elements of the deal. I didn't know he, that. I didn't know that. He yeah, was- so that's how I got connected to him. We sell... uh he wasn't one of our investors. He threw the sale party. So after we sold the company, we had a we went and had a party um, on legal roof deck in the seaport of Boston that he basically like hosted. <laughs> Took us all down to Mohegan, like nicest guy on the planet. Um, but he was like, "All right, we're doing a trip to Vale, and it's like a bunch of people from Boston tech community." And he said, "Everybody gets to invite one guest on the trip, no service providers." And so I reply back to the email. I'm like, wild card. I'm pulling a service provider. However, so. I guarantee MVP <laughs> of the week. And, I, you know, a couple of people, um, no names mentioned, Dave Balter. Dave Balter. Uh, were like kind of complaining, being like, no service providers, all this. And I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll stake my spot next year that this guy's going to be great. So I pulled, pulled Colin here under the trip and then we went out to Vail. found out when we got out there that you're not really a skier no 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 <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're we're up on he, and he said he's like yeah i'm not strong you guys go ahead we were with a bunch of guys i'm i'm okay but there are some guys like dave Isler, some of those guys that are very strong skiers yeah. and we're up on the chairlift and we look down and there's just this guy in the bowl who's stuck in the middle of the hill. And that was cool. not a blue square. That was not. <laughs> no, yeah, you didn't hit the, you started started at the difficult level. Um, but he was out there just grinding away. Turned and, out uh, that was a blessing in disguise, though, because as the ski trip wore on, Savitz lost his jam to ski heavier stuff. And oh, yeah. so we ended up just doing blue squares together. <laughs> yeah. So you and Savitz are doing blue squares, and you got to know him. Uh, Balter, who didn't really want you there, did not. You became tight with. Yep. I don't exactly remember 
how it all happened. But two to three years later, the trip was still happening. I was no longer invited in greens. Like <laughs> just kind of bullshit. But <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. But what do you just say? No, because out of like solidarity. I, I mean, you could have thrown me back on the list, but that's all right. You know, uh, not my, I, I not my list personally, even though it's like as personal as it gets. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you met them there. How'd you then, how'd that like, how was that helpful to you in I, I don't, the job? I don't know that from, uh, you know, if it, if it drove productivity or from like a revenue standpoint, but I, I think Scott and Dave are two pillars of the sort of entrepreneurial ecosystem in Boston and to have them as resources and touch points on how to navigate the ecosystem. Um, I mean, they're friends, they're both you know, mentors to a certain extent. Um, I, although I do think I drive them both crazy at, at times and just my own personal and professional decisions, but, yeah. um, it's to, to have that sort of street credibility and casually be sitting with an entrepreneur and Dave Walter's name come, comes up and I can say that's genuinely a friend. I, I just think it's like a real organic way that lends you credibility. And it's not like I did these six deals for these six Boston seed companies or these data point companies. Um, and they've definitely made connections for me, but I I would say just it's, it's been more impactful and helpful just to have them, uh, as resources. Yeah. Dave is, they're both two of the nicest guys. Everyone knows Scott's nice. Dave wants people to think he's not nice, but he actually is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. He tries to come off as not nice. I actually wrote like a- that's his like public persona, and then you get to know him, and you're like, "Oh, you're you're a really nice guy." And he's like, "No, don't tell people." No, no, yeah. yeah. I I have a a blog post that I wrote that I never published, and the title of it was "Dave Walther is an asshole." <laughs> and the, the like accompanying picture is a text exchange of us, and be like, "Hey, man, I have this like thousand word thing that I wrote, and it and I was like, I think I'm gonna call it." Dave Balther is an asshole, and he's like, "Perfect, I love it." That was <laughs> yeah. going to be the accompanying. <laughs> yeah, he's picture. like, I'll, "I'll put some money behind an ad campaign." Yeah, to push that out on LinkedIn. Have you read his book? Uh, Did you know that he has a book? Well, when I found out that it's like the biggest racket on the planet, and it's just blog posts he's already written, I was upset that I bought oh, you it. Just on go Amazon. to his. <laughs> you just go to his medium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's no, it's, it's a compilation of. So I've read all of his blog posts. I'm a fan, and I see he tweets out. I wrote a book. So I go day one. I'm like, I got to support it. I buy it. I'm like, I've read all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, classic Balter, though. He probably got a nice little take on yeah. it for him. Uh, I thought he got introspective during quarantine. Yeah. And he, you know, he does the thing. He tweeted out, you know, these people are mentioned in the book and he tweets my name. I'm like, oh, I'm in his book. And it was in a blog post where he was making fun of me nice. previously. And I was like, so we're now just putting this in paperback. This yeah. Is good. Nice. Good economy of effort, I guess. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad that I made Dave some, you know, pocket change that he's Congrats, so de- Dave. He so desperately needs. Yeah, you need that. Yeah. So Chase, yeah. I wonder if um would you mind doing kind of a zoom out on you've mentioned the phrase prop tech a couple of times. Can you give us kind of like maybe just a high level state of the industry? What is prop tech and maybe call out some of the trends that are out there to piggyback on that oh boy would you say that there is a is is cre tech different than prop tech is uh, are are there two categories or is that an overarching 
Fair. I think, um, so to start with prop tech, property technology, the term that seems to be catching, some people call it CRE tech. Some people apparently call it Cree tech, which don't like that. I don't like that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, uh, overall, any, I, the way I would describe it is any technology that is essentially predicated on selling to people in the real estate business or where real estate is the primary distribution channel um, or mechanism for the use of the technology, right? So like on one on one end of the spectrum, I would consider like the nest cam and some of the some technology for like single family homes that people are very familiar with. Like that's prop tech, right? It's a you know modernized IoT connected doorbell, right? Um, on the other end you've got you know the more legacy companies like Johnson Controls and Siemens and those guys who have been around for you know decades that provide technology to to real estate owners operators. Um, I don't think there's a difference between prop tech and CRE tech. I yeah. think it's. The I same. referred when I was at Trust. I referred to us as a prop tech company in front of one of our founders, and I was corrected. Oh, because it. I think the differentiator is, in, in the, at least in their head, was prop tech is like asset specific stuff, and we we were a marketplace. But I yeah. think that's probably splitting hairs. Probably it's kind of like fintech, right? Like there's a lot of finance is big. There's a lot of elements of fintech, and when you think about um, real estate, like you can you can start to get again split hairs on. Redfin and Trulia and Zillow and I do think like technology folks here, real estate, they think it's massive market, which it is. Real estate as an asset class is bigger than publicly traded equities, mm-hmm. but that includes single home financing, right? So like the whole mortgage industry. Um commercial within that, which a lot of people associate commercial purely with office, but within commercial you've got multifamily residential, retail, office industrial um so you have like all of these segments of companies that uh oftentimes you're you're focused on the groups like investors that invest across asset classes so you think about like deal path and some of the companies that are targeting investors and then you have certain software oriented companies that are focused on like a category within commercial real estate so we predominantly service office uh mixed use there are certain groups that only do multifamily functionality um and then there's a whole nother world on the single family home side right like the traditional consumer home so um we got connected because you kind of introduced me to prop tech like really yeah 2014 we were kind of sitting around probably doing something stupid I feel like it I feel like any conversation we had that might have helped you in this direction was around you coming to the conclusion that real estate as a category was how big how big's the market cap? I remember you spouting some ridiculous in terms of the just aggregate dollars. Yeah. Keep going all yeah, up. Um and and also just sort of experiencing the brokerage side of things and seeing people market buildings and being a tenant and bumping into issues as a tenant and throughout the brokerage process. Like I, f- I feel like 
maybe your shady experience at Faneuil Hall in some way got you here on some level? Yes. So it's not market size. You you like the addressable market size. I remember that. Yeah. 9.6 trillion in 2019. Global. Is that global real estate or is that US? Um, not small. No, that's US. So Nate, uh, REIT.com actually has real estate was between 14 and 17 trillion with a midpoint of 16 trillion. Um, which like these things are funny because you like, those are massive numbers. What does that mean? Right. I couldn't in yeah. a venture deck. Like it's good for that opening slide. Yeah, yeah, and it's like there's a lot of money here. Where that act, how that money, like it's investment dollars, right? So you know when you look at like share of wallet for technology, it's a very different story, but it's still massive, right? Like it's very when you think about. I saw I'm I'm gonna botch the source, but I saw that on average, three point three percent of the gross rent is going to IT now on a building. Like that's a it's a big big number mm-hmm. when you back it, start backing it out of those top line numbers. But I, I actually remember it was a TechCrunch article, 2014 guest post, where the guy was like, forget who wrote it, but they were saying when Silicon Valley wakes up, they're going to see that this is the largest industry that hasn't been touched by technology. Yeah, I remember that. I send you the link and I'm like, what what kind of tech's going on here? And you pointed me to Co-star, uh, maybe VTS, maybe or VTS, maybe. 2014. What else were we? I think there were a and, couple the, and other WeWork was getting lit under that co-star sued into yep. submission. Yep, um, and I think that was probably the beginning of the WeWork. WeWork getting some really good press, even though it was not a technology company. Right. I actually that was around. I forget what year. But I worked out of the very first WeWork location in Brooklyn, in or somewhere the first Manhattan location. Because I remember uh, I saw Adam Newman in the space, and he wasn't wearing a shirt. Awesome! <laughs> and the Wall Street Journal in their most uh, recent article was trying to get me to comment about it, and I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. Near that. <laughs> um, Good to get that call, though. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, what's up, Conrad? Um, well, so I, I, I sort of remember, I remember us sitting down in the T3 office with the pats on one day yeah, and you having the framework for a deck and you were just sort of rapid firing. I think you were looking for confirmation on some stuff. Yeah. I don't really remember. I don't even know if there was any value to that conversation. You seemed to already know where you were going. Well, I think we knew there needed to be like software for how people interface with the building. Like we had talked to you about that. And then I think what you did was you pulled up the P&L yeah. of a building somewhere in and around North Station. Yeah. And we were breaking down, here's the here's the dollars and cents of how people- Yeah, like the, basically the rent roll for an asset that was on the market. Which I think was one of the more uh, important moments because- now looking back on it like we make everybody at hqo depending on what your role is you have to have a certain level of proficiency in talking real estate finance right like you got to understand what a cap rate is you got to understand some of the basics you got to have an idea of rent roll and triple net leases and how debt works um and that it became very apparent that what's different about real estate from a lot of other industries is that 
other industries think about the customer and they're very product driven in that like everything revolves around the customer and real estate very much revolves around the investor. And we're like, okay, this is a different game mm-hmm. than what we're used to playing. Like coming out of media where you care deeply about the audience and you care about the advertiser, it's kind of two-sided in a in a way that's actually really similar to real estate in terms of the audience being the people in the building and then the owner. But it it hasn't evolved the way that most other industries have, which have, where there's extreme customer centricity. Right. And I, I feel like throughout your, since you guys pivoted, you've seen that maybe change, or at least it's becoming, if it's not a pain point, it's on the radar as something that this is something owners need to be paying attention to. Yeah, we've certainly tried to drive it in terms of, you know, our belief is it's not a question of if it's a question of when and who's going to lead in terms of every other industry has followed this path, right? Uh, the cab industry never cared about the riders. You know, the medallion value kept going up in New York City, Boston. They didn't think it would ever come down. And then somebody cared about creating a door-to-door better experience for the rider, which was Uber, and it completely blew up the model. Um Hospitality was a little different because hotels do care about guests, but they didn't have, they were playing within a very rigid framework of where, where a guest should stay. And Airbnb took advantage of really unique inventory uh, opportunity, but again, facilitated a good experience through software. And when we were looking at buildings, we were like, uh, this is shit. Yeah. You know, like the yeah. best in the game. You can still get stuck in their lobby when you're trying to go visit somebody. Yep. Frustrating just to get up to the place that you're trying to go. I, I In brokerage, I mean, I'm sure it happened to us a couple of times in looking at buildings. There are numerous times you show up to a place to actively try to purchase the product that that broker is selling. And it's not the broker's fault usually. But you can't mm-hmm. get access to the space. Spoken that like a true broker. <laughs> <laughs> um it, you can't get access to the space that you're there to see for whatever reason. It's happened like numerous times. Right. Um, and it's as simple as unlocking a door. Right. Right. So how you got us connected though. You, yeah. Do you remember the first round of, cause we told the story in episode one of like, we're running low on cash. Accomplice Ryan Moore tells us we got to make a sale. If we make a sale, we get a bridge. We kind of ran through all that, but we did what we didn't run through was you walked us into. I mean, I can remember Sam Schaefer, Jim Grady, uh, probably a dozen, and I'm blanking on names. It seems like too much, but <laughs> I, to, to frame it though, I remember, I, I, I remember that you showed the Jim Grady for, introduction three or four X more meetings upon HQO's behalf for the product than you did office tours. Yeah. Yeah. Just scaling so, my time. And he did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could get him to show up for the office store. Uh, I'm glad you guys could do two today, not 10. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, but I, but I think, you know, that one, that's really Boston easy. Boston properties, maybe. Boston BPE, maybe I, you guys were, so. Gomer had the connection with Malves. Um, yeah, I don't think that panned out though. No, Gomer and Gomer and Pat Mulvihill went to Babson together, but wouldn't return the calls. <laughs> Ooh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. This is awkward. <laughs> um, but also, I I think what was interesting about that is every single person was a captive audience that you talked to. Yeah, right? did you get us connected to 
national development too? Maybe. Um, I think you're overestimating voltage? my impact for sure. I don't know because I remember a few. I I found out quickly. The only one I and I told the story last week was that I've accidentally met Jamestown at a Reebok event. Yeah, and I didn't know I was talking to a the guy that owned the building. Um, and it worked out. Mm-hmm. You know, no nerves in the pitch, nothing to lose. That's nice. But I remember. I mean, Schaefer was the first look in terms of I met him in the lobby of uh, what was the building? One twenty five high. Was it 125 or, or one international? So we met in one international as a newcomer to commercial real estate. I oh, Shafaro too. Shafaro. Yeah, that's right. Before Co was here. I had no idea how big of a deal Tishman Spire was. So I'm talking to the head of, he was what, leasing and op- property management? He was head of global, like, basically relationship management, which is right. so all their I'm, biggest tenants I'm globally. I'm sitting there showing him a half-baked app in one international he's like yeah all right cool come down and meet the tishman spire team obviously i did my homework and i'm like oh this is like rockefeller <laughs> like this is like iconic real we estate should probably like, keep them on the target list here. like we're starting in the majors and i'm <laughs> just kind of getting my feet wet in single a but all right let's do it shoot or shoot uh and i remember i think they had 11 people in the meeting and i was like oh man Including start, the new marketing person, I think right? I need to dress differently. <laughs> <laughs> you guys uh, aren't wearing Henleys today? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, got the crap beat out of me. It was a great experience. But uh, Brady I, was also a good one because that turned into business. Yep. We're sitting in his build, their building right now. Yep. That has HQO. But I remember, uh, same thing, had nothing to do with the app. He and I connected, made the connection that. He reffed me in college basketball. Remember that? Yep. We're looking at each other and I'm like, how do I know this guy? And he's looking at me like, how do I know you? I feel like you've annoyed me in the past. And then we, he's like, oh yeah, you're you know, a wise ass player. And I remember he's a- I think he's still reffing. Yeah, God. he was a great ref. God, I love that guy. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, was a, that was a big one for us because they're well known here in Boston. Yeah. I think, I think my, my favorite- um, my favorite time because I was between I wasn't I had just left T three and I didn't I hadn't started at Trust yet and it, we I went <laughs> I went on a business trip with you unsolicited. Oh, you came out to Divco West. Yeah, Divco West. Yeah. See, I knew there was another yeah, big one. That's that was Stevie Lou's thing, but that was by far my most favorite. Um, that it was really fun to be in like a pitch meeting and not have anything at stake, and <laughs> but also but being on the we were on the right side of the table on that one. That was a fun meeting, though, because we fly out to California with Steve Lunau, who is Colin's friend from college, and Divco West, big West Coast landlord for people from tech that don't know. They invested early in WeWork. They're kind of unique in that they invest in technology companies um, as a traditional commercial real estate fund. They were probably like one of the first in the game that was investing in technology that they thought had a dedicated fund. Yep, could benefit from their platform. They're in San Francisco, so they're you know they they're around technology. They're very savvy. But a guy named Jody Gessow out there uh, through your friend Steve took a couple calls with me. Said come out and we walk into this meeting. There's a big team, and 
I remember Jody walks around the table, sit next. He sits on the side <laughs> with myself, Colin and Steve, kind of like I'm with these guys. I was like, all right, I think this like is going to be the people go well. that are going to underwrite the deal around the other side and ask the questions. <laughs> yeah. and their boss and he, is standing and sitting Jody's across kind of pitching with us. Is a great win. And but the best part about it was everybody on the Divco side was like, "Who's that guy, Colin?" <laughs> <laughs> They were like, we don't. Steve is with Jody, Chase is HBO, but who's that guy? And like, don't worry about him. He's fine. There will be no talking from that yeah. guy. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I remembered we it's went a business out to, meeting. Yeah, we grabbed. <laughs> we grabbed. A, <laughs> don't look at him. Look at me. Uh, we looked at. Uh, we went out, got a bite with Jody, and I think we got. I got the call like a couple days later that they were in. That was huge. That tipped. They were third or fourth, so it was. Uh, Jamestown, Nat Dev, Bull Finch, and I think Divco probably came in fourth, and they were the first invest and client. Um, memories, man. That's a good time. Yeah. And then Luna and I capped it off by going to the zoo. That's good right. Zoo. <laughs> I got on a flight and was like, yeah, I got to go collect that bridge money. I didn't but have a job. You, you guys have fun. Um, <laughs> you never did get your commission on that. I apologize. That's cool, man. Che- checks in the mail. I'm not in it for the money. Yeah, that's well, <laughs> perfectly <a> clear. <laughs> <laughs> that's a mistake. Uh, so now that you're you've worked on both sides, what are you seeing in terms of where do you think, including with everything happening with COVID? Yeah, what's like what's the major themes? You've been on both sides of the table now that you think are going to have the biggest impact. Well, I I think probably I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this too, but I I feel like oh you'll get them t- <laughs> softball. Um, inevitably, the adoption is slower, um, and I feel like those that are winning in the prop tech space are doing so. Um, I don't want to say less aspirationally, but like they're not trying to. They're, they're trying to augment an experience as opposed to completely change the paradigm of how an archaic business is being done. And I think like, again, I don't want to say what you guys have done to date as not aspirational, but you took something that is simple and that these landlords are thinking about and provided them a solution for it in a, in a low impact way. You're not trying to tell them to act like the hospitality. You're, you're giving them a tool to, to, to like, think about their tenants as customers and not rent roll. Yeah. We, I think that is a hundred percent right in that we've watched other people come in and like try to do too much, trying to do way too much. We talk about internally, we don't use the word disrupt, right? Silicon Valley likes to talk about disruption. You go to New York city and talk to largest investors in the world in commercial real estate. The word disruption is not, when you've got a great business model, which they do, that's not really what they're looking for. Right. And we learned quickly, particularly because we got to ride in the wake of WeWork, where WeWork was saying, you know, everything has to change. I mean, they were saying some crazy shit, like even, our even, mission is to raise the world's consciousness. Right. But that was peak nuttiness. They but were when saying, you, like, when you look at what they were actually doing, they were filling vacancy. Right. And they were saying that they were doing a lot of things that was just filling vacancy and they they got people to move and care about technology but we've fundamentally learned that you have to supplement you're not substituting right like you're coming in and you're you're making things better and not for another like three five 
seven, eight years, whatever the number is, but it's a, it's a ways off. Are things going to like truly start to change? And I think the things that are going to start to change are not as like radical as like what some people think. Like, I think you're going to see more buildings that are mixed use in one asset, right? So we're already seeing this resi on some floors, office on some floors, retail on some floors, right? Like <coughs> hospitality, like a hotel that's four floors, right? So you're going to have much more flexibility. And I think probably the biggest thing is that is changing is I think you're going to have adoption. I think COVID is going to drive what would have been five to 10 years of tech adoption happening in probably like two to three. Yep. Because you have to check that box as an owner at this point. Right. I, it's going to be interesting to see what, if any, the lasting impacts of COVID will be like as it relates to density and, and, um, you know, the, with, with just like the open office tech trend, you're, and what that does to like bathroom usage and common corridor usage and elevator usage, stuff like that. Um, you know, like I had, I had clients that from 9 11 on always had, parachutes that were at like the top of dead parachutes for all their employees after 9-11 which is in looking back seems absurd but at the time right um so be it'll be interesting is like is this a is this like a blip and then everything goes back to normal three years from now i I don't think it like if, if there's tech adoption which i think you're right it will accelerate tech adoption is like what that we're doing today will stay because the hypothetically this is going to happen again and we've even ex- experienced it yeah and i do think what has happened the longer covid has gone on in terms of you know we're not very few places outside of california are in like full lockdown um and even aspects of california is in full lockdown but restrictions i think the longer it goes i'm starting to see more confidence in kind of like the fundamental value proposition of office owners, because I think people are starting to see like, oh, that that old paradigm worked pretty well. Like everything from routine, like you're, I mean, the craziest stuff, we had a Slack conversation in our company where people were saying they missed the commute, like whoever would have said that a year ago, right? Yeah. Um, I think routine, environment switching, um, kind of the the social pressure isn't the right word, but social drivers of when you're around a group of people behaving a certain way, it makes you behave a certain way, which is good for culture and work and productivity. Um, Accountability of being in person. Like you just have to be more accountable. Like I think a lot of things worked and now they're seeing like we can take the benefit of treating adults like adults and letting them do certain yeah, things. Yeah, there's like 20 the to 30% of this. It's actually kind of good. Right. But, but the rest yeah. of it's miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you happen to see the HBR study that Microsoft let them do a study on like the first three or four months of COVID? No. And they were, the basically the conclusion of the study was that um, people are more productive. And yeah. I, ju- I just don't believe it. <laughs> no, I think I think so. This is, t- by the way, this is coming from a person that very much likes like a flexible, yeah, work. Yeah, and we at setup. HQO had a we had a four day, pre-COVID. We had a four day a month work from anywhere policy. So once you have been on board for six plus months, and we know you and your trusted employee, 
you could take on average one day a week to work from anywhere. Like we're tracking motion versus progress. Like I, we say it to every new employee where we've all worked with the guy or girl who's first in last out and they don't get shit done. Right. So motion ain't progress. Like we care about results. There is a ton of benefit when you're in a more open office plan where people are constantly talking to you, taking a day, clean out the email, like skip the commute. Like we see the value in that. Um, but we've seen like from a productivity standpoint, not being in person, it wears down relationships, right? It wears down collaboration. Um, I think a lot of people after COVID specific to the Microsoft study were worried about a lot of people could get their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people could get fired. You also couldn't be distracted. There was nothing to do. Yeah. One of the, one of the metrics they were pointing to, and we, we should look at this after, but, um, on average, people were online longer, which is to me, that's like someone moving a mouse at seven in the morning. Yeah. Like getting the the light green on Slack or whatever. And we've seen the longer you're online, the more it contributes to burnout. And there was a, I think Business Insider just published a study. Um, I'll pull it up. That the headline reads, tech workers burnout is now higher than before coronavirus pandemic. So I think like 60% of people who worked in tech were burned out before coronavirus. Now it's closer to 70%. So in general, working in tech seems to burn you out. I don't know if that's actually working in tech or if there's a millennialism there where people are complaining. The, the hustle porn much. stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely something about when you're not engaging with people in person, you get a certain sort of emotional battery recharge from that. Like we taught Kevin McCarthy brought this up on the last episode, like the the constant where people there's community in Italy and a community in Japan where they have the most centurions, people that live to over a hundred. Yeah. A lot of face to face community interaction. Yeah. Right. Like they, there's something they beneficial. tend to have multi-generations in the home. Yep. So there's just something about like burnout when you're just looking at a screen, there's less meaning. Like you're a number in a spreadsheet as an employee, you're not calling the guy that people talk to when they're walking past the office your desk in the office, stuff like that. So I do think it's less about remote and I think it's more about flexibility and we're going to see distribution, right? So we've talked about models and distribution, right? Like you can work from anywhere and it's beneficial to do so, to switch environments sometimes to like change your mentality. Yep. You need to be creative. You need to reset, recharge, whatever. Like we, I mean, there's opportunity in that, I think. Yeah. The um, what are you what are you seeing as as uh obviously r- right now like the big log jam on things going back to normal is people are scared to a certain extent. But as far as like operational things that are in the way, like childcare, um, like what are I see I see childcare as the as a big one where in March and April people might've been saying, Hey, like my job, I'm getting my job done. It's, I actually really like this a lot. Right. And then at some point they're on a zoom call. Like I've heard horror stories of, um, like a woman getting a new manager, never met that manager in person. And the manager didn't have kids and was really irritated by the fact that there was yeah. like a 
four-year-old popping in on a zoom call um what what other like impediments to just getting back to normal do you see i think we see two so first is that child care i mean it's just unsustainable right like we have a bunch of parents here with kids between the ages of newborns to high school and there's like this sweet spot of kids that you know the high schoolers are somewhat self-sustaining i mean it's still not good for them um to be doing all remote learning but they at least can some of them can drive themselves stuff like that the newborns like and the the toddlers like a lot of daycares are open right but it's these kids in elementary school that are just getting you know it's bad situation right and the parents like you just have to be on these kids can't you can't say like you can't just leave them we're gonna give you autonomy to do your schoolwork like self-teaching is really they can do that for like 30 minutes right if that so that's a huge issue and you just can't force it's tough because like managers need to hit results not just our company anywhere but like people fundamentally just can't work as much and even if they do find a way to work as much you're stretched thin right like you're exhausted with the kid stuff and work and then the second one that nobody will talk about publicly but we yes (laughs) but we've heard on like multiple calls that companies are saying you know we we know we can bring people back in a safe fashion it's mostly hr like we're worried about lawsuits um we're worried about just kind of waiting until there's some sort of movement in the market where it becomes like herd mentality right yeah. like we want to go with the herd we don't want to be a a leader on returning to the office and i and this is by the way a little bit of a bubble which i've talked about with hqo folks where people in manufacturing healthcare life sciences retail like there's a little bit of privilege in the whole like I deserve to work from home. Yeah, there's thing. a ton of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a ton. It's not a little. I can say it. it's not my podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's like a little bit of privilege, which is fine, but um it's definitely HR. Like we've talked to a lot of companies that are, you know, names you would recognize, um that are pretty forward thinking. A lot of them have had public statements about yeah being innovative around remote work and they're like, no, nah, we need to get people back, but we don't want to. Right. There's a, yeah, there's, liability. so there's a, there's a social stigma around it in the same way there is with going to a concert or, yep. but um, yeah, that's tough. Yeah. And I think it's going to require breaking like one, you have to make everybody feel safe, right? People have to feel safe. You also have to make it not, all like such a safety burden that it's a miserable experience right so you have to it was kind of like flying immediately after 9-11 was like really tough yeah right? um and they continually iterated on how do you maintain the safety standard without making it as poor of a consumer experience and i think yeah real estate's gonna have to figure that out yeah i mean it's interesting it's like right now i mean i've gone out to dinner and you know like done things safely i think and and felt safe but it's not the same and it's actually not in my calculation not like worth it (laughs) you know yeah i was talking to somebody who went out for work drinks the other the other night and he's like dude i was in like an alley on broad street and i was like what am i doing here i got a two and a half year old at home i don't like good to see you guys but i don't need to so it's it's tough yeah 
I also think people are going to have to redevelop routine, right? Like when you're in a routine, it took me a little while. I also just had a, my wife and I just had a baby. So did you, by the way. Congrats. Yeah, that's right. So getting up and driving in to the office every day, like after waking up, walking downstairs and, you know, work out at the house. I was living with my in-laws, so I was in a very different situation. Mm. That was tough. Mm-hmm. Love them. But <laughs> um, it was worse for them than for me. <laughs> it's How many hard. bathrooms in that house? Just out of curiosity. There are two. There are two. That's not enough. (laughs) (laughs) For me. For me. Yeah, no, I felt bad for them. They they did not sign up to have me. They signed up to have me as a temporary guest. They did not sign up to have me as a guest in a pandemic, once in a lifetime (laughs) scenario where everybody's locked in. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I think like routine of getting back up, get out, get to the office, get back. Like people also are going to have to rebuild routines. Some of that, like it's just going to come from employers starting to make it happen. Right. Yeah. You see in the same way you're like, we keep referencing nine 11, but you, you saw Facebook, you saw Twitter, you saw these, these, uh, big occupiers of space come out and have that. What felt like an overreaction still to be like, we're not going to the office until 2021 which at october 2020 is maybe right but um you wonder what that does just to the psyche yeah and i think in april may coming out being like we have learned so much about working remote like you cannot possibly in 30 days of a scenario that's unsustainable. A, f- a fluid scenario, by the way. Fluid, where nobody knew anything about COVID. They didn't know anything about how lockdowns are supposed to work. They didn't. People didn't know anything about anything. Be like, we have learned a whole new way to work. Which you're like, you saw it with Barclays. We we may never go back three months later. Ah, yep, we're probably going back. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that to the press? Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> But that's actually, that's a perfect example of an office job. You know, my friends that are working in market-driven jobs are there and have been there. Yeah. Yes. I've got a bunch of buddies that sell medical devices. Hospitals open, they're back at the hospital, which is arguably a more dangerous place than an office building. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot lot to unpack there. But so we're tiptoeing in there. Make some... um <laughs> predictions of who's going to lead the way what those early days are going to look like there's a lot of human behavior psychology stuff about rebuilding routines that you mentioned so how do you think it happens in practice my prediction on who's going to lead the way back will be finance cuz uh, finance knows you know they've got a culture of accountability right you read about the i banking hours sleeping on your desk all that and it, like you cannot argue after their quarterly earnings in Q3 in the middle of a pandemic, what did Goldman double profit or JP Morgan double, you know, profit is up. Um, their business model works and that's obviously the industry, but it's their culture. They've got a successful culture and it's all density and the industry being close to one another is a driver of what they're doing. Wall Street is a thing for a reason. So I think they'll lead the way back. They also have the capital to be very forward thinking on 
reinventing their office space. They don't have to spare expenses, right? Um, and I'm they, sure you saw that after 9-11. Yeah, but they were less likely to adopt the, the lower density rates and were still sort of operating in traditional office environments with a lot of conference rooms and private offices and stuff like that. So, you know, you think about your office that we're sitting in right now, we never contemplated. I mean, I think the density was somewhere under 150 people per square foot, but you have to think about that now with a six foot bubble. Yeah. Which is a total pain in the ass. Um, (laughs) Just honestly, with the desks that we have and I'm not an office design person. So we got to start to crack that nut because we have people coming back in, but I think, I think finance leads the way. And if, when you're looking around, I mean, we talk to clients in different areas of the country. I talked to a group in Michigan where they're like, yeah, we never really left the office. Talked to some like Colorado suburban offices where they still, they didn't empty out as much. I think New York is like the big question mark. California, who knows what they're going to do. They, they seem to be taking it blazing a different path than everybody else but new york in particular needs to come back and that's got to happen with finance um i think i mean you're seeing like scott reckler at rxr wrote an op-ed in the in the new york post i believe it was maybe he was in a a world uh, wall street journal video about their yeah their they were doing new filtration systems and um also about just rethinking how they're going to spec out vacant space too. Yep. He called it a civic duty for New Yorkers to return to offices, which he's not, you know, I, I'm sure some people rolled their eyes at that, but when you think about taxes in New York city, real estate is the biggest taxpayer. I'm sure I know it is in Boston. Um, schools are funded by that. Transportation's funded by that. It is, uh, it's important to the ecosystem of the city. So, I know he had uh, some pretty good points about like returning is um, somewhat bigger than purely just the office. I don't know if that's going to get people to move, but uh, at least an admirable position. So I think they're leading. You've heard about JP Morgan brought back traders. I believe uh, some of the big PE shops are, are bringing people back, right? So I think that's where it'll start. Um, and I mean, everybody talks about a vaccine, I guess. Um, but the average vaccine has taken 11 years to develop. I don't think you can kind of hang your hat on a vaccine. Right. I think what, what most likely happens is we get through flu season, which is, you know, coming out of February, March. I think people will, we've already gotten much, much better at treating covid when you look at the the numbers on that so i think that'll probably be when we start to see people coming back up but i also think subleases are going to start to really squeeze the market next year yeah i don't i i don't have a great handle on what's going on as it relates to shadow space in the market but like 0809 um everything was sublease everything was sub sublease but it like the Sublease vacancy went way up, so the vacancy is going up. But you also have this: um, the second a, a public company puts sublease space on the market, they have to write it down. So, I, like the guy I was working for at the time, was more in like a support role at this point. Um, 
had me just calling around and saying, Hey, like, do you guys have extra space? And I was calling banks. I was calling any, anyone that would have to basically publicly recognize the fact that they had excess capacity. And we uncovered an additional 2 million square feet of sublease space that wasn't formally on the market. But, um, so I don't have a great handle on that, but if I'm, if I'm in a position where I need more space right now, I'm feeling pretty good about my purchasing power. Yeah. And we've talked to a couple of groups that are saying, obviously B always gets squeezed because of tenant type class B, but class A is going to start to see stuff first half of next year come on and that's going to squeeze B even worse. I talked to a few um, people at big consulting practices that said, you know, they see the, um, they do consulting for landlords. They see the top folks, class A, using their scale and their, you know, they have the capital to have people focused on technology, whereas class B, it's like, somebody gets assigned, you know, a lot of times the mid-market, not not specific to class A, class B, but mid-market folks don't have the resources to be dedicated to tech. And I think we're going to see well-capitalized, large landlords start to come out at, you know, H1 2021, modernize offerings with technology as companies are comfortable coming back, tired of working remote, their scale better product and offering like winners are going to win big. I think, I think it could be particularly as some of the mid markets are feeling the, feeling the burn on smaller companies with shorter leases, you know, default in as the economy is recovering more slowly, servicing the debt becomes hard. Class A starts to buy things uh, or top tier starts to buy things at, interesting prices like there's going to be big office opportunity i believe for some of the the big smart money are you hearing your customers or or prospects you talked about sort of asset diversification Mm -hmm. um with multi-use but what about i mean as people started to see we work as a foe rather than a tenant as landlords did are you are you hearing more people try to wrap their heads around tranching their assets um i.e. the hatch or yeah. or something like that where they're they're creating a product offering for someone that wants shorter term sort of less customizable i i cuz i think that was inevitable but i i feel like this because of the you know the economic environment it it behooves the landlord that can be sort of a little flexible and nimble in that regard yeah. and just lease the buildings up i think they all think it's a must i don't think they think they have a choice right like I think everybody is looking at, you know, what what percent of the floor plate should be flex, right? What needs to be short-term leasing? Um, this is where we talked about not disrupting things, but I'd love to see innovation in that space where um, the folks that have scale uh, team up and create you know, look at the airline industry where you have people that share miles across different programs, things like that. Combining scale so that you can address your best customers' tenants' needs, where you can say, if you maintain a long term lease with us, you know, upsell on top of the long term lease, flexible offering. 
So instead of going down market where those companies are the first to go, start to provide flexibility to the top of the market as the added benefit because workforce planning for the big guys, if you give them flexibility, I think you can maintain the linchpin of the business as a long-term lease, right? And then you can give flexibility on top of it as an upsell, you know. That's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Like a rewards program, like a travel rewards program. Yeah. If you take X amount of square feet for 10, 15, 20 years, whatever the number, um, we will open up the flex network where it's landlords one through 15 that have two floors or 100,000 square feet, whatever the number is, where you can start to book a desk. I don't know. Somebody called it real estate fracking the other day. Um, should probably work on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's what WeWork was trying to accomplish, but they had the wrong segment of the market, right? Yeah. If you can provide flexibility, everybody keeps talking about this hub and spoke model, which doesn't make a ton of sense to me because like, if you're, you're going to drive like a mile away to get out of your house, like how many employees, like if you just take us, right? We have people north of Boston, west of Boston. The spoke, south. The spoke component is tough. It's like the yeah, spoke product is tough. Like coordination of a company is tough. Um, you have it already. You look at like where Fidelity's offices have been. Yeah. Like they've had Rhode Island, New Hampshire. Like, I don't know. It's a, it feels like something that somebody wrote in a blog and now everybody says it. I don't. There might be opportunity there, but I think there's more opportunity and interesting ways to go top of market, big employers and combine long-term lease, but start to figure out how flexibility works across assets, which is the challenge, right? Because you've got different ownership across different assets, which is where it gets sticky. So in a lot of ways, it's not even a product problem. It's a legal- And a financing problem. Challenge yeah. that you got yeah, to figure out. But if you can crack it, that's what what people want, you know. Just to follow up on kind of unrelated to that talk track, but thinking about something you mentioned, trying to sell technology to people who are operating really strong businesses that potentially aren't looking for. I hadn't thought I actually had written down like disruption and now can understand why that word's not really welcome in those rooms. But at Trust, you were in rooms you were part of a team building tools for a pretty happy population with the way things had always been. And you guys are selling to people that have done well. In what was, yeah. In what was one of the best markets, you know, we've had since we've been in the professional workforce. So what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, there were, there are pieces of the product that trust that were, um, it's really, there were components of what we were doing you know, like the initial value prop is we're in a creative marketing channel. Like we're going to bring you more deals, right? So for free, by the way. So that's a no brainer. That's low impact. Then you, you start trying to, um, automate certain processes, which are annoying and archaic in, in the way of, you know, like how you negotiate a deal. And I think that's forthcoming, but it certainly wasn't there when, um, you know, you can't, you can't basically tell someone to use our template as the 2000 square foot tenant. You can't say, Hey, we're going to use this agreement. You can't go to the car dealership and get in them like a purchase and sale agreement that you created. Um, 
So like the lease, the paper pushing implied in a real estate deal, we were trying to change that. And it's just really tough to do because it's worked and it's um, right at, at that moment. Like they're not incented to change the word doc and redlining a word doc. Yeah. I mean, the only reason HQO got off the ground was because a couple of things happened in market, which was number one. WeWork made the market. They were scary enough that they made the market care about technology, right? Number two was it was an up economy and we have a value prop that's top line rather than purely cost efficiency, right? Like we can save costs, but in booming times, it's like, how do we continue to drive business, right? And like a lot of the first wave of prop tech was gains on efficiency which are starting to get really incremental and there's still some of the a lot of the market is still only interested and this is where it's an investor mindset of we want to save our way to you know more noi which is great but at some point a lot of people are going to start to invest heavily in a way that wins what is a very fast changing customer behavior and people who are purely trying to save are probably going to get left behind um so we got we got into the market at the right time and then you know this has happened at a time where we went from a vitamin to a painkiller so i think ten experience was you know great economy we're printing money this seems cool i don't know we'll try it at a couple of buildings too we need this technology to help people literally come back to our product that has emptied out in a historic fashion so to your point, like they didn't have to do anything. WeWork started to, at least the perception was, we're going to force you guys to change your game. And now there's event that really is making people change. Yeah, and that was the the same with trust. Is like pretty quickly those 3D tours become pretty important, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's just it's tough to it's tough to basically you were asking your customers to sign off on something that was an additional service that they could tout to their prospects or their tenants to rationalize a dollar increase in rent that they were getting that was supported by the market dynamic anyway. Right. Um, and then that sort of gets turned on his head and you become not suddenly there are a lot more options, right? And tenant engagement and having some sort of tech uh, layer to your asset becomes the differentiator, I think. Yes. Or that's the hope, right? Yeah, and a lot of that came through the pass-through yeah. dynamic, right? That's another key element where you look at technology tools that are purely internal for the real estate team versus a tool that is fundamentally for the real estate owner-operator's customer that becomes a pass-through in the OPEX, which also took resistance out of our sales motion. Right, like it made it, it made it possible. So, not a new idea. People in the late '90s were building web portals for buildings that no one cared about. 2007, I believe JLL had a app. Right when, um, might have been 27 to 2007 to 2010, called Corridor. That was like a tenant app. Um, not a new idea. Right, there were a bunch of people in Europe before us company down in texas at one point for us uh, a lot of it was on execution and seeing that like to make it a good experience you actually have to start heavy integration work in terms of like controlling aspects of the building experience 
So good ride here. Yeah. What are we going on, Tom? We are hour and 12 minutes right now. All right. Anything else top of mind, dude? We don't have a time limit. We just shoot the shit till we run out. Let's get the booze flowing. There you go. No, I I got nothing. All right. Well, in the spirit, so let's go. HQO company values, learning excellence, true speed, goodness, ownership. I'm starting to pick like a random thing that fits one of the values. And you know, Patrick Collison, the guy who started Stripe. Yep. So on his personal website, patrickcollison.com slash fast, he just curates a list of things that were done really fast as kind of a call to we've become bad at doing certain things like building buildings, doing things with our infrastructure, stuff like that. We've become bad at it. We do things really slowly. So fun fact for you, our value of speed, Disneyland, crazy new concepts, like those types of theme parks at the time were not a thing. How many days do you think it took them to build Disneyland? Six months. Close. 366 days. <laughs> One more than a year. <laughs> I, I just you went really low. buried the lead there. I, mean, I just I, went I low. Said, yeah, you did well. <laughs> But like, imagine that is but tr- that is outrageous. Dude. Outrageous. Yeah, it took three hundred sixty six days, and now we can't get anything past. Like, think about getting like a new restaurant in like the when the seaport was coming up. It probably took like three hundred sixty six days. New office build is that's like the time for a new office right there. Yeah, which is pathetic. From signature to butts yeah. and seats. Yeah. Um. There's another crazy one that I got to pull up. Uh. Oh, here we go. The iPod. Yes. Tony Fidel was hired to create the iPod in late January 2001. Jobs greenlit the project two months later, March 2001. They hired contract manufacturer in April, one month later. Three months. Three months from the start, one month after Steve Jobs greenlit it. They announced the product in October 2001 and shipped the first iPod november 2001 oh my god revolutionary music playing device in less than a year so 290 days after getting started think about a tenant build out where i mean that's what we're doing the same thing that people have done everywhere this guy invented the ipod unbelievable we can we can't create a pdf duly executed with 20 minor business points in it in less than a month. That's that might be operator error. That's part of it. <laughs> that is part of it. But do you think that like HQO is pushing the the point is like everybody's having the same why I I really struggle and that was why I was excited about trust is like finding a new office should be like Carvana. Yeah. It's and, the same exact thing. Yeah. And you have to I think too much of prop tech is focused on the technology rather than the people because it's the people in the industry. Like Ernst and Young had a interesting stat where landlords acknowledge this, like very smart people run a lot of money invested in real estate, but they've acknowledged that one of the biggest challenges is that fundamentally they don't have the skill set change management to get the technical skill set to just like unlock all of the value is one of the biggest impediments to progress rather than the technology itself, right? Because you can't just flip a switch, we're tech-enabled, and it works. It's a people problem, which has to come from all of prop tech. There needs to be... I have been surprised, and maybe there are, but like 
the big CB, Cushman, JLL. I'm surprised there hasn't been more. Um, there's big business in creating training programs to create this skill set for the market, right? Partnering with MIT Real Estate Forum, partnering with Cornell's School of Hospitality. Like, there's a lot of, I think, ways that you could start to push young talent that could start to unlock some of this. But I don't know. Maybe you should start that. It sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> I you think about insurance, and I insurance I feel like has been dis, disrupted and changed a lot more than real estate. Two two industries that I think are analogous and like they're still sure. archaic. But I, but like what what you're talking about bumps into construction, which is a whole different. And and Saul sort of navigated this world a little bit too. It's it's people. It's to your point, like that user error is real. Like sometimes I'm not making that letter of intent for you on the, on the spot. It's, it's taking me two days to do something that really takes 15 minutes. Right. Right. Um, so there's the, the construction, like the, those two construction and real estate are inextricably bound. And I think construction tech is, and like transparency in the construction market is a big, is a big impediment to, um, and that's what honest buildings was and now procure procore is solving for, right? It's still adoption is tough and that's procore is incredibly successful. Yeah. Honest buildings did a great job too. We, we drafted in their wake. I mean, even VTS, like a lot of these groups had to go and try to sell technology for five, six years before we did. They, they softened the beachhead in terms of the motion of buying a software for companies like us, for sure. Still not where it needs to be, but. Yeah. I mean, if even like honest, I don't, I'm not super familiar with honest buildings, but part of it is transparency and build, building systems and, and tracking cons- your cons- capex, right? Like right. you're doing a TI, like construction or build out or. Yeah, and like how's that money being spent? How's the project progressing? Yeah, and there's the there are subs, just these big right? black boxes underneath the TI allocation and the, what the what the project's actually going to cost that ultimately lie with people. You know, there's right. there's like a very a person level. Um, you're you're ultimately just taking someone's productivity that they're self reporting. Yes. So that's a tough one. So I bumped into it. And retreated with my tail between my yeah. legs. I got a sweet t-shirt out of it, though. <laughs> it's what everybody remembers. <laughs> Good pocket tea. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. This Good was rough. fun. We've been talking about this for years. You'll be back. Do you guys have any, like, five five rapid questions or, like... We got to come up with the... Uh, yeah. What are we doing? I just really like the pulling from that fast list, put people on the spot, I guess... So was I right on the iPod or was I wrong on the iPod? We were at Disneyland. I said three months. The iPod. iPod? I was right. You were under. Here's one for you. Last one. Yeah. (laughs) Amazon (laughs) Prime started to implement the first version of Prime in late 2004. When do you think they announced and rolled it out to the market? So they started work late in the year of 2004. Q2 2005. Six weeks later, February 2nd, over Amazon Prime, <laughs> the dude created a deliver like, 
a delivery model changing commerce and delivered it in six weeks and we can't get like a wall taken down. You cannot. I actually, this is not directed at our office. Our office is great, but at the last shitty one that you got us, maybe that one, we didn't have a sink. Remember that? Yeah. That was tough. It was the right deal at the right time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, boys. Thanks, Greens. Thanks, Greens.